I can understand the instinct as funders. I mean, hell, it's an instinct I've had as an academic and as a practitioner to say, let's try to invest in new things that might radically reshape the playing field. I'm not saying that that's entirely bad, but I think that gives short shrift to the importance of building long-term infrastructure. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Dave Karp, is a political scientist who is a professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., in their School of Media and Public Affairs. His books are The Move-On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of Political Advocacy, and Analytic Activism, Digital Listening, and the New Political Strategy. Dave was previously an environmental organizer with the Sierra Club and served six years on their board. We talked about his path, why and how he became a political scientist and studied internet and politics, how he became Twitter famous for a bit, and how he's going back and looking at predictions of the future in Wired magazine. It's a good episode. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Dave Karp of GWU. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Dave, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Dave Karp. I'm an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. The doctorate in political science that I earned from the University of Pennsylvania back in 2009. Biographically, the stuff that's probably most relevant to your listeners, I got involved with the Sierra Club back when I was in high school, including their student run arm, the Sierra Student Coalition. I was the national director of Sierra Student Coalition in 1999 and directed the training department for a long time. So my introduction to politics and organizing came in the 1990s. When I was starting to organize, we were still using phone trees. Like the internet existed, but we weren't quite using it yet. And while I was in graduate school, I also served on the Sierra Club's National Board of Directors. So I spent six years helping to run that organization during the years when groups like moveon.org were helping us to figure out how the internet changes the organizational layer of American politics. So we were at that time seeing what I call in one of my books, the new membership and fundraising regimes. Move on a redefined membership as being anyone on your email list instead of anybody who writes you a check and sends it to you in the mail. That then became the focus of my research for quite a long time. So I wrote my first book, which was a dissertation, but then became a book called The Move On Effect, which came out in 2012. That's about these new membership and fundraising regimes and how they change organized political advocacy. I wrote a second book in 2016 called Analytic Activism that looks more deeply at how once you've redefined membership in that way, organizations can 
through analytics and testing, kind of listen to their members in different ways and use that to develop new tactics and strategies. That book came out December 2016, which was not a great time for a book on digital politics. The way academic publishing works is that means that I sent them all the text in, I think, March or May of 2016. So there's this one big thing that happened in 2016 that was nowhere in the book. So after that, I spent a lot of time trying to be present in what was happening with Trump and trying to figure out what was happening with American politics and the internet. And that's been my focus ever since. It's an interesting career, and I'm sure a long way to go and a lot to do. But can you tell me just a little bit about where and how you grew up and how you got in a position where you're going to be attracted to the Sierra Club in high school? And like, what's the roots of that political interest? I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, uh, Washington, D.C. suburbs. Public school kid who I think my freshman year in high school started to like hiking. Basically, what happened is there was a summer where I spent a bit of, bit of time reading Thoreau by a lake, which now feels like a, a bit of a cliche when I say it. But at the time, I was you know present in that life. I started by sitting by a lake reading Thoreau and liking hiking. And then as I started to read more about environmentalism, this was, what, 1993, 1994. And so as I was starting to connect my enjoying wild places with the broader world, that was right when the Republican Revolution happened and Republicans started to try to cut down all of our major environmental laws. In my scholarship now, one of the things that I occasionally point to is that Trumpism doesn't start with Trump. Trumpism arguably starts with Gingrich in terms of after the end of the Cold War, Republicans deciding that they should push the boundaries of political norms amongst elites and just say like, how extremely partisan can we get without facing any repercussions? You can argue it originates with Nixon, but you could also argue that it originates with Gingrich. So that was the time at which I, as a high school student, was both finding something in the environmental movement and also seeing this great threat that we needed to respond to. And that led to sort of a political awakening of deciding, okay, it's time to start paying attention to politics and learning how to engage in politics. It's funny because I, I remember in high school, avoiding Thoreau without really reading him, feeling like the way my teacher described it just seemed too out there for me. But then years later, like walking in the woods, listening to him on audio, because he really had something, you know, but you went to Oberlin, right? How was mm -hmm. that? Oberlin was, was great, both as a political science education and as an activist education. Oddly enough, being a Sierra Club guy at Oberlin made me it made me relative to the campus kind of conservative. What sticks out in particular is I took a year off to help run the Sierra Student Coalition. And when I came back, it was 2000. I remember arriving back on campus for my junior year in fall 2000 in Ohio and seeing the people who had set up their vote for Ralph Nader booth. And I was like, wait, but we're a swing state. We can't do this, guys. <laughs> so I ended up being one of the people who organized the campus for Gore. There was a, a big debate between me and one of the Nader supporters where I was saying, even if you think there's no difference between the two of them, if, if we elect George W. Bush president, then he's going to appoint people to the Supreme Court who are eventually going to overturn Roe. And they were like, that had never happened. At that time, I remember getting told to my face that I was a corporate shill because I'm supporting Gore and I'm a Sierra Club guy. Oberlin is a traditionally activist campus. It gets maligned in the media. I think they tend to like to poke fun at, at Oberlin activist students today. I don't think Oberlin activist students today are that much different than activist students in any other era. It's just that you can find them on the internet and 
make a national issue of it. It was a great education that sort of helped me understand institutional politics and uh, the levers for how you push things. What was it about political science that arrested you enough to continue on and go get a PhD? Well, so I entered Oberlin assuming I would be an environmental studies major and a political science minor because environmental movement. And I think my first semester there, I was taking environmental studies that was having us ask questions like, what is nature? Which is an important question, but one that doesn't grab me at all. Like, I'm happy to have that conversation, but it's not something that I'm thinking about for hours afterwards. The intro to political science was all about how do interest groups build power in order to try to pressure government to do better things. And that was something that for hours and hours after class felt like an interesting puzzle to me. So that led me to, to major in it. And I spent the, the years both organizing with Sierra Club and also studying it as an undergrad. I graduated from Oberlin and, and moved back to Washington, D.C. to take a job with the Sierra Club. This was, a, what, a year after September 11th. So the economy was still a little weird. I had some infighting with a former friend and that job ended up falling through as the result of some organizational drama. And so then I kind of did the post-college malaise of figuring out what are you doing with your life. And at some point I realized that in the midst of that, I was still buying political science books to read for fun because I found them interesting. So my 20s were kind of spent saying, well, all right, I guess I should go get a PhD in this while I figure out what I'm doing with my life. Because the one thing I know is that I like to read political science books. And then my first year in graduate school, there was a hostile takeover attempt of the Sierra Club National Board of Directors by anti-immigration activists. So then I kind of got called upon by my community to run for the board to help stop the takeover, which we did. There were five seats available. We won all five of them. We prevented the takeover. So then graduate school ended up being simultaneously learning the literature in political science and attending board meetings to help run one of the largest national nonprofits, which is not a fun way to spend your 20s. Those identities are both full enough that if you're doing half of each, then you feel like you're half-assing everything. But it, the end result is that it ended up giving me a perspective on how academics were looking at how the internet is changing the world and also how practitioners were looking at that same phenomenon. Yeah, I can see that being actually really fruitful as a graduate student to have sort of data which you are you care about and which you're kind of intimately familiar with to analyze. It's a very good thing to have done while not being a great thing to be to be doing. Certainly the the book benefited in a big way because back when I was doing that research, I don't think a single academic had ever really interviewed senior staff at MoveOn to ask them, you know, what's your model? What do you think you're doing? And the reason for that, I, like MoveOn wasn't very interested in talking to academics because the few academics who had studied them had mostly come to the organization with a set of assumptions out of academia for what the internet is, like how the internet is supposed to transform the network public sphere. And academics would then like read move on emails and write critical pieces saying, these organizations aren't living up to our ideals. These organizations are terrible. And groups like move on would look at them and say, like, that's your idea. Like, that's your ideal. We're sorry we're not living up to us. But what, like, why are you yelling at us for not living up to your ideal? The part of how I was able to study them in such depth, there was a, a senior staffer in Sierra Club who had, she'd been a Sierra Club staffer and then she'd moved to move on for a while. She'd come back as her digital director. And so we were at a, I was at a board meeting talking with her mid-graduate school as I'm figuring out my dissertation. And late in the board meeting, I'm telling her about the work that I want to do and how I want to study them. And she was like, well, I'll email my friends and introduce you. So they got introduced to me as the Sierra Club board member who knows this world, 
and wants to study you guys for his graduate work, then they're all happy to talk to me. Whereas if I'd been some random graduate student saying, hi, can you take time out of your busy work saving the world to talk to me about my interests in the literature I'm reading? The answer is probably no, and I don't really blame them. It ended up being career making and something that I'm very happy to have done. But every once in a while, I'll talk to somebody and, you know, an early career graduate student who's trying to say, like, should I do things like you did? And the answer is like, no, that was, that's a terrible way to be a 26 year old. And it's a great way to be a 30 year old and no longer doing that. There are so many walks of life where you have to pay dues that are unpleasant in order to get to a place that is, I don't know, tenured and full of freedom or senior in some law firm or, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I get it. I went to graduate school in political science also at MIT. I am all but dissertation there. I did not have what you had. I really didn't have a topic. And I went off and built a company instead and things worked out okay. But I'm a little envious of the focus that that gave you. Tell me a little bit about how, how you went about taking that interest in move on and organizations and politics and making a dissertation out of it and a book out of it. Because it's not obvious to me like how you structure that, how you make it something that see people would want to read as well as satisfy the committee. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I benefited tremendously from having the right mentor. My advisor at, at Penn was a guy named Roger Smith, who just recently retired, but is... I've had him on the show, actually. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, great. Yep. Um, yep. So Rogers, who is wonderful, who we've talked with. Um, Rogers isn't an internet scholar, nor is he an interest group scholar, but he's a brilliant, curious, and generous mind. I really um, liked him. Yeah. There was a key moment early on because the book is about move on, but it's also it's about the blogosphere, which was you know very timely at the time. I just finished a draft of a, a paper, an academic paper that is asking what happened to the political blog, blogosphere because the blog era is now over a decade ago. But at the time, it was very current, and I remember I was talking to him in his office, early dissertation stage, trying to figure out what is the hook that lets me study bloggers as an academic. And he kind of patiently listened to me for a while as I spun my wheels about, I had some idea about how the nature of being a political elite is changing. And I would develop a theory of what were political elites and what are they? And like, I still think that's basically right, but also that's such a mess of a dissertation. Like I, I, I had nothing there. And he kind of patiently waited for a while. And then he said to me, well, it, it sounds like you want to study bloggers. So why don't you go study them? And he just kind of gave me open room to go and approach a puzzle that I was fascinated by and didn't understand and gather data, ask questions and figure it out. And methodologically, I describe myself now as a, as a descriptivist, somebody like I'm, I have never in my work tried to assess causation. That's important work that gets done and is really important in the field of political science. It's not really where my skill lies. My skill lies at approaching things that we don't quite understand yet, probably because they're new, probably because of the internet, and engaging in rich description where I, I help to describe them such that their practitioners can say, yeah, that's us, and that that yields some insights for people. That's not a thing that's normally done. Like That's rarely done in political science. Descriptivism isn't a, a big part of our field. But I kind of got into that because I had an advisor who gave me free reign to just pursue curiosities. And then in terms of writing the book, 
it was about trying to weld together the practitioner experiences and the practitioner mindset that I developed over these years with the academic mindset and find the pieces that would be interesting to each of those communities in turn. So I'm trying to fit together the blogosphere and the move on organization stuff. How did that all come together? Oh, it's, both? Oh, it's the daily coast. Um, oh, oh, okay. In those years, I'm watching moveon.org be tremendously effective in the types of organizing that the Sierra Club is doing, you know, like getting people out to rallies. And then I'm also watching as the Daily Coast blogging community is endorsing political candidates uh, and using ActBlue to fund like grassroots fundraise hundreds of thousands of dollars for those candidates. And I'm looking at that and thinking, okay, that's the work that groups like like political groups do. And then I was looking at the discussions of the blogosphere and it was all about citizen journalism. To me, that meant that there's something wrong with the blog scholarship or at least something missing from it because like, sure, they're engaging in some acts of journalism at Daily Coast, just like um, Amnesty International will sometimes engage in acts of journalism. But that that's a political organization in a different form. And so I had Move On as an organization in a different form. I had Daily Coast. I was also very interested at the time in a group called Democracy for America, which was after the Dean campaign failed, they went from Dean for America, DFA, to Democracy for America, just as Obama for America later became Organizing for America. But since the Dean phenomenon was this key moment where the internet was being used for offline organizing, a story that I mentioned in the book, spring 2003, just before I started graduate school, a friend of mine who also came out of Oberlin politics department, he lived in Minnesota and he'd gotten excited about Dean. So he calls me up and he says, hey, Dave, some friends and I really supporting Dean. We put an advertisement on the web for people to meet at a bar and have a meeting supporting him. You've been doing this work for years. Can you help me figure out how to do a good meeting agenda? And I gave him my advice on like how to structure your meetings so the meeting goes well. Again, like I'd run trainings for years. Like That's my skill set at the time. And I got off the phone politely not saying to him, dude, that's not how it works. Like People don't show up to meetings because you put it on the internet nobody's going to be at the bar with you. And early on, what, what made Dean for America such a phenomenon was people actually showed up. Like they were using meetup.com. They were using these different, at the time, very new technologies. And it was the first moment where the internet really was mattering for offline organizing. And then after that ended, after Dean didn't win, it converted to Democracy for America. And particularly in Philadelphia, where I was based, that Philadelphia probably had the strongest unit of Dean for America. And it was a federated group. Like it was the group called Philly for Change had meetings every month where they would come together and talk about how are we going to change Philadelphia politics. And looking at them, like that's a federated political association, but federated through the internet. So I was looking at that and thinking, okay, I've got Move On, I've got DFA, I've got Daily Coast. These are three examples of internet mediated organizations that are doing the work of older groups like the Sierra Club with some things that make them stronger, probably some things that make them weaker, but these are different organizational forms doing the work that both I know how to do and that I study as an academic. And nobody's talking about the organizational forms, so let's go study them. Both because I thought that would be interesting intellectually, but also because I thought figuring out what they're doing is going to be helpful for figuring out how organizations like the Sierra Club adapt to the 21st century. So that, that agenda is also in there. So how was that received as a dissertation in my department that would have been i mean like 
we read Richard Fenno and who was honored, but honored as the past. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, there, and it was kind of dominated in American politics by rational choice theory and models that were mathematical. And it strikes me from just looking at your resume that your path to professorship is multiple steps. Tell me about that. How do you get yourself through a number of fellowships and positions as you work through this? I'm very interested in people's careers as they co- as they come into you know important jobs in, in politics and the study of politics. Yeah, and the, the, there's some stories there. I'm happy to share. So another one of my dissertation committee members, I, I recall specifically, he he read a draft of one of my chapters. Uh, and his, the first piece of feedback he gave me was, like, I, I think this is going to be really good. You know you're never getting hired in a political science department, right? <laughs> right. And I was like, I, I didn't know that. Do you think I'll get hired somewhere? And he was like, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> and that was a conversation that probably happened in 2007. I defended the degree in 2009. Um, what happens in between, I spent the year finishing the dissertation on a dissertation completion fellowship at the Miller Center in University of Virginia which was an additional year of funding because otherwise I would have been out of money and, and like out of academia or like struggling to, to make enough money as an adjunct and a TA to like barely scrape by. That's like a is study of the presidency center or is it more than that? They mostly do presidency study, but also they do a mix of uh, history and politics there. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, most importantly, that's just one of the places at least a decade or what over a decade ago it's one of the few places that had fellowship lines for dissertation completion fellowships. So I landed that position and spent that year finishing the dissertation. That was also the year that the economy collapsed. So I think I submitted 50-something job applications to political science departments that year. At least half of those jobs just got pulled because if it's public university, the state said hiring freeze, and most privates did as well. I have a, a strong recollection. This is actually... Also, the story of how I uh, got into my favorite band, the Mountain Goats. But there was a moment in the spring of that year, I had finished the dissertation. I had fully struck out on the job market. I had applied for a bunch of postdocs several months ago. None of those had come through. The applications for like one-year visiting positions had all bottomed out as well. I had asked Rogers for advice, and he was kind of like, I'm going to see if I can find anything to help you. Everything's broken right now. Like, I'll see what I can do, but like, I don't know. And I ended up one night in, in Charlottesville where I was living, I like went and sat at a bar and started to write down for myself what my backup plans were. Because it was it was really looking like I had finished the dissertation, I had struck out, most likely I'm going to need to move into my parents' attic and be the 30-year-old single overeducated guy. That didn't look great, but that looked likely. So I started listing sort of, you know, what are my backup plans since it looks like I've just got no hope. And in the background, in that bar, they were playing Sunset Tree by the Mountain Goats, which includes probably the most popular song this year, whose chorus is, I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me. I'm like drinking whiskey, figuring out the shambles my life has become, listening to this band and just ask the bartender, like, what is this? I basically only listened to their music ever since. A couple days, I think, after that, I got a phone call from the Taubman Center at Brown. And what they said was, we're curious if you're still interested in our postdoc. We've offered it to somebody else, but we think she's going to say no, and you're our next choice. And so then it was like, oh, what, do I want to be the kind of weird dude living in his parents' attic, or would I like to be an Ivy League postdoc? <laughs> so I said, yes, I'm still interested. And they said, great, like hold on a week and we'll get back to you. 
I did not get a lot of work done that week because I was just sitting by the phone. At the end of my career, I want to find who it was that turned that job down because I owe her my entire career. (laughs) Sometimes you just need a little door to walk through. This is the story of modern academia, and it's getting even worse, is I the metaphor that for years I've used when I'm talking to people considering grad school is that you need to understand that the academic job market is a lottery and hard work is just buying more lottery tickets. I worked hard and that meant that I had some lotto tickets, but if we were to do a Monte Carlo simulation and you know run 10,000 histories of Dave's life, probably 90% of them, I spend what, five, six years getting a PhD and then afterwards wonder like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? And then kind of try to get back into nonprofit work, having been on the Sierra Club board, but otherwise not been doing it day to day for six years while I got a degree that I couldn't use. Somebody told me that 50% of people who get PhDs, that's the last thing they write in their field. I would actually be surprised if it's that low. That was told to me a long time ago, and I have no idea if it's accurate, but yeah, it represents like sometimes it's a terminal degree sort of. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, like the, as the market has gotten worse and it's, I mean, it's a lot worse now than it was in 0809. And that at the time looked like Armageddon. It required an awful lot of luck, including somebody turning down a postdoc. And that meant that I got to move to Providence and spend a year like teaching one class while I worked on the turning the dissertation into a book and published a bunch of academic articles. And I also had developed friends in the field of communication who said to me, you should apply for jobs in, in our field. And at first I was like, why, why would I apply to a communication department when I'm a political scientist? Political scientists don't look at other fields. And they were like, trust us, you should do that. So the following year, I applied to poli-sci and communication. I had one interview in the political science department, and they weren't interested in me. But folks in com were looking at my research saying, oh, like you're helping us to understand digital politics. Nobody understands that. We have classes in digital politics that we need to teach. Fantastic. Your political communication, come on in here. So that led to, I I became a a tenure track assistant professor at Rutgers University, which had the benefit of getting to live in Brooklyn. I, at the time, joked that if if your first tenure track job lets you live in New York, you don't actually get to complain about anything else for the rest of your life. I did that. I had a two-hour commute each way on a train for a couple of years, and it was a great department, and I also knew I'm not going to spend... 40 or 50 years in a two-hour commute each way. Um, so after a couple of years, the, a job opened up at George Washington University in a department full of people who do roughly what I do. And that looked like an ideal opportunity. So I applied, I got it, and I've now been here for a decade. How was that first book received, the move-on effect, once you got it out there? Much better than I... So my fear writing it was that it doesn't fit into anybody's specific field. My worry was that it would be viewed across the board as who does this guy think he is? Like he doesn't really know our literature. He's touching on it, but he's also bringing in these other people. Like who does this guy think he is? Why should we bother with him? And instead, and I think this is a combination of luck, but I I do think I reread it this summer and like I did have some good writer's craft in being focused enough on the puzzle and either humble enough or subtle enough in terms of the critiques of fields that instead the way it was viewed by a a number of different fields was this is an interesting project on things that we care about. It isn't within our discipline, but it's something from outside of our discipline that we're happy to read and cite. So that book, it won a best book award from my section of the American Political Science Association, Information Technology and Politics. 
It got read by sociologists and by communication scholars, got read by political scientists, social movement folks, people in sort of association of, of internet researchers. So like internet researchers in general viewed it as an important book that was informing our conversations about topics like collectivism and what activism looks like in the 21st century. It was received much better than I had it really would have hoped it would. The most exciting thing too was like I wrote that both for academics and for practitioners, not really knowing whether practitioners would find much use in it. And I think since I did a good enough job of thick description to be kind of the first person from outside explaining, here's what the move on model is. Here's the daily coast model. Like here's what these models are and what they're good for. Like I remember visiting a group called 38 degrees in the UK, which is the the UK equivalent of move on. And I was over there for a conference. So I stopped by at the time I was doing some research that they, they kind of figured into the second book. When I went to their office and met with them, some of the junior staffers were like, oh yeah, like when we start working at 38 degrees, they tell us to read your book. Yeah, that's so like, nice. That, yeah. like, that's, that's awesome. Like yeah. that, that was kind of the dream. Yeah. I don't know if that's still like, now it's a decade old book. So I don't know if they would still say that, but hearing from practitioners who, as they were getting into this field, found value in the book because it helped explain what this model is and what it works for. Like that's the highest compliment you can get. What was the motivation for the second book? The story of how that came about, it's very much a sequel to the first. And what actually happened is I was, I was attending Netroots Nation, which is still around, but like back then everyone went to Netroots Nation. That and Roots Camp from NOI were the two convenings that everyone went to. So I'm at Netroots Nation. This was probably... This was either 2011 or 2012. I had just finished up with a big chunk of the book. It must have been 2011 because I think I had finished writing, but it hadn't come out yet, which is going to be relevant because I, I was waiting to go to lunch with a friend who runs one of these Netroots nonprofits. And she got stuck in a conversation with another one of these Netroots leaders. They were about to put an ad on the air about uh, the Scott Walker re recall campaign in Wisconsin. Um and it was a joint ad, so they had different visions for what the ad was going to be, and they were kind of arguing it out. And coming out of activism, like immediately I could see, like, oh, you, this is the tactical discussion. And what happens in this is you have two different visions. There's no way of knowing which is right. And so they're going to argue until they're just tired of arguing, and then they're going to table it for next time. I used to tell a story about back when I was a high school activist, I was working on this coalition that was trying to stop a mega highway from getting built. And we had like four meetings in a row. We were deb debating whether we should use a petition or postcards. And we would spend 45 minutes debating. And then it would end with people saying like, well, well, we'll just table it for next time. There was like a state senator who loved postcards. And there was a former state rep who loved petitions. And each would like bring out their expertise. And at the, like, I think the fourth of these meetings, like the high school student me gets tired of it and kind of slams the desk and says, school is starting next week. We need something to bring around to students. We've got this petition. So I'm going to use this petition and you all can too if you want. And then they all agreed like, okay, we'll use the petition. And afterwards, my mentor comes to me and he's like, you know, that, that's so fantastic. And my buddies are all like, you know, that's leadership right there. And like all that 18-year-old me or 17-year-old me could think at the time was like, this, this cannot be how we make our tactical decisions. There's got to be something better than this. Right. Oh, so hence, hence analytic activism where you're actually able to measure things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so to, to, to bring that back in, I like I have that memory of how decisions get made. And I see this friend who's supposed to go to lunch with me getting into what's obviously going to be that. 
And what I'm really thinking is like, how do I get out of this? Cause I'm hungry and this is going to take forever. And instead she makes her argument and her colleague makes his argument. And then she says, well, we'll test it. And he says, yeah, let's test it. And we go to lunch. But as we're going to lunch, what's occurring to me is, oh shit, I need to write an entirely new book because using testing in order to help figure out which tactics to use. It's not that that's perfect. There's a lot of flaws in it that I discuss in the book, but that is an upgrade over letting the high school student just pound the table and say, like, fuck it, let's use a petition. And that's a revolution that was going on in every field. It's basically data science revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So the use of analytics for tactics and strategy and advocacy was in the backdrop of the move on effect, but it it wasn't at the front of it because I wasn't ready to see it yet. I just finished writing this entire book and then realized there's an entire next book to be written about what they're do- what these organizations are doing with this data and what it's good for and what its limitations are. So then I kind of had this sinking realization of I got to spend another four years writing an entirely new book, just adding more depth to the thing that I just finished reading. And I was really proud of that book. Like I think it was a very good book, but like any author listening to this, if you've just finished your book and suddenly realize, oh shit, I need another one for the stuff I didn't cover, like that's a dark feeling. What you want to do when you're done with your book is like sleep for a good six months. Well, I would think there would actually be a feeling of, while I have an idea for another good book that might be, might leaven that sensation a little bit. After you've slept for a while. (laughs) Six months of just nothing. I'm just like... Reading trashy novels, and then oh my god, I have a great idea. Yeah, but not not right away. Not right <laughs> away. Did you did you commence working on it immediately? I commenced the the thought work of it of trying to figure out what is this thing, what's the shape of it, and then it was probably two two and a half years of working out what the research would look like, both the field research, but also there's a whole chapter in there studying MoveOn's petition platform versus Change.org's petition platform which was stuff that really mattered in 2013, 2014. During Trump, post-Trump, details of digital petitioning, petitioning becomes less vital than it was like in the Obama years. Like we're in a different time now. I spent six months just gathering data on those two petition platforms so I could effectively compare them. So that was about two and a half years of like slowly tinkering with and building up data and then probably a year or so of writing it. You're at GW. Are you, is that the right place for you? Are you happy there? Is the job the right fit? The, the main course that I teach every semester is called Strategic Political Communication. And one of the main texts that I assign is Alinsky. It's a job where the, their midterm is a campaign planning model that we use the Midwest Academy's campaign planning model. It's the same thing that I was taught in 1996 and that I've been teaching to activists since 1997. So it, it's a job that allows me to take the practitioner knowledge and identity that I'd been building up through my 20s and use that alongside the academic side of myself in ways that are complementary and, and both useful for students. There's not a lot of jobs that would let you do that. So it's I'm, I'm very lucky to have this. Do you consult with groups outside of the academic work? I used to. So after the move on effects and after analytic activism, I did a lot of both going to conferences and talking to practitioner groups, sometimes just like, you know, going to a board meeting and being the you know guy who talks for lunch and gets a sandwich. Um, and occasionally doing some consulting. Since 2018, the main project I've been doing has been a step away from this. So in 2018, I 
decided to read the entire back catalog of Wired magazine, all 25 years of it, chronologically, and wrote about that for Wired's 25th anniversary issue, which was October 2018. But I got interested in what I've been calling the history of the digital future, kind of taking a step back and seeing what are the predictions and expectations that particularly the Wired set, the techno-optimists, but also the crowd that is often invited to speculate on how technology is going to save the world. Like, What are the predictions that they have for the near future? And over time, which of those have come true and which of those always seem to be five years in the future? Self-driving cars have been five years in the future for about 15 years now, for instance. The death of the New York Times has been predicted since 1993, always five to 10 years out. So I did that project to kind of take a, a wider slice of trying to learn from history so that we can make better strategic choices. That's going to be the next book. I call it the Wired book, but it's the history of the digital future book, looking broadly at what we can learn about the history of the future of digital technology and what moment we're in now and how we can try to shape it. So with that, I do a lot less, lot less consulting and a lot more like just writing snarky things for either for my Substack or sometimes for Wired. Because my my focus has has shifted to this broader set of things instead of the the organizational stuff that I was specializing in. I was debating whether to ask you about one snarky thing that you said one day, which I bet you can guess what it was, but it was bed bug related. Um, yeah. so <laughs> do you want to tell that story? Because some people may only know you for for that. It is interesting. So I like it's now a few years away. I would definitely say that I was Twitter famous, not internet famous. So there was a little while in which. If you were very into Twitter, then you absolutely knew who I was. Uh, and if you weren't very into Twitter, then it was like, why does this guy think he's such a big he, think he's such a big deal and that I would know him? But yeah, it was uh, what beginning of the fall semester 2019, so it was the end of August. Uh, I teach my strategic political communication class, go up to the office, uh, open up Twitter, and there's a headline on Twitter that people are riffing on that says, "But bed bugs have been found in the New York Times newsroom," and everyone's trying out their jokes. And the joke that I come up with is. The bedbugs are a metaphor. The bedbugs are Brett Stevens, which I th I thought and still think is very clever because at least if you're in my segment of Twitter back then, everyone's always roasting Brett Stevens as this minor irritant that for some reason the New York Times cannot get rid of. So like I, like I think that's very clever. I post that as I'm walking home that night. I check. I have zero retweets, nine likes. So apparently amongst the like seven or 8,000 people who follow me on Twitter, like everyone else thinks that's not a very good joke. And then Monday night, I get an email from Brett Stevens at the New York Times. I didn't use his Twitter handle in that, in that comment because that felt kind of rude. But he had found it or someone had found it for him. And he emails me and the provost of my university saying that uh, I had set a new low for civil discourse on the internet He's often surprised what people will say when they're you know, not in somebody's face and inviting me to come to meet him and uh, his wife and kids and then see if I would call him a bed bug to his face. And he must really not like bed bugs. <laughs> I, or I mean, what he really doesn't like is he says he's thin skinned, people. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what I think it is, is that he does not like other people in the status hierarchy who are below him in the status hierarchy speaking ill of their betters. There's a way that that would have gone had he only emailed me. Because if a New York Times columnist is randomly going to email me, then I'm probably going to engage in a conversation with sure. him, even if I think... It's kind of an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Like, sure, why not? But he had CC'd my provost, which makes this a power move, right? Like, what he's trying to do is call the manager on me. Look, I've been teaching Alinsky and teaching E.E. E. Schatzneider my entire life. So I know a bit about strategic reframing. So 
I responded to that by first posting on Twitter just about it, saying I had made this tweet earlier today. Nobody found it funny, but uh, this uh, columnist has just emailed me and my provost because he doesn't like being called an insect. Um, and that got a ton of pickup from media Twitter and academic Twitter. And some journalists started to write me saying, like, can you share with us the the message? So then I followed up by showing a screenshot of the message. And when people saw how over the top he was, the entire internet lost their mind and spent like a full week like making Brett bug jokes. He quit Twitter in a huff. Uh, he then went on MSNBC the next morning and said that it was really serious because I was using the same language as authoritarian regimes, which people made fun of him for because like I'm a lowly professor people haven't heard of. Like this is it's, this is not it's not like Putin call, calling him something. Right. Yeah. Like a, the misdiagnosis of the power structure is notable there. And then that was Monday, Tuesday. He followed up on Friday by writing an entire New York Times column about how the Nazi propagandists had radio. And today we have Twitter and the people who are most vulnerable on Twitter are centrist intellectuals who are constantly being attacked by leftist academics. So the entire internet kind of looked at that and was like, like he didn't use my name, but he was very clearly calling me a Nazi in the pages of the New York Times and insisting that this was all appropriate because bedbugs is a slur against Jews, which I checked with my friends at the JCC and none of us have ever heard that before. I happen to also be Jewish and no, man, that's not a thing. So that turned into through sort of a, a series of strategic misadventures from him that made him very internet famous and me a little internet famous. Because it's one of the few times where like, kind of the entire internet came together and said, all right, that guy sucks. Let's all make fun of him. And like, the guy kind of deserved it because he was in a position of power. So we were all And he up. was a free speech advocate on campus. And you're right. doing the most minor piece of apparently disagreeable free speech with this joke. So it, right. seemed, well, it made him seem awfully, uh, I don't know, what's the right word there? Petty, <laughs> petty or something. Else. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So there, yeah, there was the combination of here's a white guy who has no clue what it's like to be a non-white guy on the internet because like every woman faces worse than that insult on Twitter every day. One of the main things that he wrote in columns and had given as a college commencement speech is that college students need to face more disagreeable speech in order to survive in the world. And here, this guy is going and searching for an insult and melting down at it. So like there were a lot of things that made it delicious. And that also, again, like made me kind of Twitter famous. So after that, I did you at any point feel like fearful? He did email the provost and I saw the provost ends up inviting him to visit. But did you feel like, was there a momentary like cold chill? Like, Hey, I'm, am I going to get into trouble for this? Or did you know that it didn't have legs? So I, I felt comfortable the whole time though. We should talk about why it matters a lot that I was already tenured at that point. And it matters a lot that as a Alinsky and Schatzneider aficionado, and as somebody who studies the internet, I knew immediately that I had a strong strategic position and he had a weak position so long as I expanded the conflict. Like if I had sat there quietly and waited for the provost to respond, I, I wrote about this on Substack about a year ago, but there's really no way for me to win the interaction if it's just the three of us. Because the best case scenario is that the provost will support my academic freedom while being really annoyed that at the beginning of the semester, he has to deal with this shit, right? Like there's no provost who wakes up and says like, what I'd really like to do right now is damage control for a pissed off New York Times columnist. I have some professor who was in a mood. Like that's not a good day. 
But because I was able to expand the conflict, by the time the provost, like, you know, this is happening Monday night when the provost is asleep. By the time he wakes up, the story he's being presented with is like, what do you think of this New York Times columnist who went off the handle at this very milk toast tweet? Like, what's your reaction? That makes it very easy. Like the, the provost handled it great. Like I am proud to have been part of GW given how he handled it. I also did a good job of making it very easy for him to, to be the good guy there because by the time he's being asked to respond, the story is set such that Brett Stevens is obviously the bad guy who overreacted and all the university needs to do is follow its policies and have the back of the professor who doesn't need this noise either. But if I should know, like a, a couple things that really matter there, if, if I was untenured, I probably apologize to Brett Stevens right away because then I need to be aware of the potential downside for myself there of being on the provost radar as just the the like young professor who can't shut up. So even if I've done nothing wrong, my risk profile is much higher. Or if you'd said something two or three notches more offensive. Right. Yeah. yeah. If I'd yeah. actually stepped well out of line, that's different. If I was a woman or a person of color, then the likelihood of escalating mass attacks go up. That entire episode, I was one of the main characters of the internet for a week. I didn't get a single death threat. And that's that's pure luck that Brett Stevens at that time, as a never Trump conservative, the profile of his fans are basically boomer retirees. Like I got some hate mail, but the hate mail was literally on people's letterhead from like retired lawyers and dentists saying, you used a, a, a disrespectful word. How dare you not re- apologize? But like, if this had been me versus Tucker Carlson, then I would have been getting sent death threats. The standard profile there is what death threats, uh, people trying to send the police to your house, people sending images of, of my, like my kid in a gas chamber. The things that r- routinely happen to people in that situation, I faced none of that. Some of that is is my identity and the position I'm I am in in the status hierarchy, and some of it is if you're going to end up having a villain that you're fighting against, it's a really good idea for that villain to have just no supporters, right? Like the Fox News crowd was not backing him. The Breitbart crowd was not backing him. None of them liked him, which means the people who would usually decide to make my life hell, you know, were laughing alongside us. I even saw that Trump took a swing at him. Yeah, it it got a little weird. What, What happened there actually was that same week, bed bugs were found at one of Trump's resorts. And so then Trump ended up riffing on the Brett Stevens thing somehow because bedbugs were in the news again, but this time it was Trump related. Weird week. I bet it was. <laughs> but kind of might have felt like, hey, I'm relevant for a moment, you know? I was very Twitter famous. I, I went to a family wedding like a week after that. And one of my uncles was like, hey, what's it like being famous? And the other <laughs> one was like, sorry, what? And then I explained it to him and he was like, okay, did you get some followers out of it? Like, the narrow bounds of being Twitter famous became very apparent because people either knew exactly who I was for a year or did not know and then really didn't know why I would care. Yeah. You came to my attention recently because you'd written a piece about rethinking political innovation. Why don't you describe what you're saying in that piece and why you wrote it? So this is part of a, a project that I'm doing on my Substack right now. Um, since the Move On Effect came out 10 years ago and what I'm doing with the Wired Project is critically rereading what the future looked like to other people. I thought it would be intellectually very productive to reread the move-on effect 
and kind of place myself back in the shoes of, of me in 2012 and ask a decade later what new lessons come to light. Like what are the things that I got wrong in an interesting way? What are the things that I just couldn't see coming then? Like I, I thought that sort of reflective practice that I apply to other people, I should apply to myself. So this is the first in a, a series of posts that I'll be writing on that. Um, but the, the thing that stands out, well, one of the themes that I use in the move on effect, back then people talked a lot about this idea of disruptive innovation. It comes from an academic named Clayton Christensen who had been studying the microprocessor industry in the 70s and 80s and writes this book, The Innovator's Dilemma, um, which was all about how large corporations end up getting outcompeted by small startups and sort of explaining the logic of it and then explaining how they should respond by like setting up skunk works so that they can continue to innovate once they get big. And that business book had kind of taken off as an explanation of the internet of the aughts. So in the, the web 2.0 years, people were very big on looking at that and saying, oh, what we're seeing everywhere is disruption and disruptive innovation. The bigs are all, fall, are, are all falling. The old institutions are falling. They're getting replaced by these upstarts. It's just like Christensen. And I kind of bought into that in the book. So one of the frames that I use in this book is the idea that we've got these old institutions like the Sierra Club, and they have trouble innovating compared to a Daily Coast or a Move On or a Democracy for America that are internet native. They are building their membership and fundraising regimes from scratch. That gives them less ballast, less heft. You would rather like have the resources that the Sierra Club has, but also look at the ways that they can innovate that older groups can't. Hey, it's just like Christensen. That's one of sort of the motivating theories in the book is like, we're kind of seeing disruptive innovation for the nonprofit sector here. Let's think that through. Do you know the book End of Big, Nico Mealy's book about? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Nico's yeah. friend. Yeah. 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 Um, so like that's in the backdrop and rereading it, I, I kind of wanted to put that under the microscope a bit. And one of the books that really motivated me there, there's this fantastic book also from science and technology studies called The Innovation Delusion, which came out, I think, just in 2020. That's an argument from Lee Vinsel and Andrew Russell about how when we actually look at those tech fields, well, what you find is very little of what's going on is actually innovation. Most of the work that's happening in Silicon Valley circles is maintenance. So all the attention is on innovation. And the trade-off there is by focusing on innovation and by putting all your money into innovation, what's actually happening is that you're undermining the important work of maintenance that keeps systems running. So I read that argument well, probably about a year ago and found that fascinating both for the Wired Project for understanding tech, but it also left me kind of thinking, God, this resonates a lot with how the move-on effect looks to me 10 years later. Because one thing that, that happened in between these two moments, one of the groups that I study in the book is called the New Organizing Institute, which when I was doing the research and, and when I published the book, was what I called a Netroots infrastructure organization. The new NOI was founded um, by alumni of the Dean and Kerry campaigns after 2004 when they realized that like, now that the internet is considered crucial for campaigning, everybody's asking, who can you bring to us who can do this? And there were like, like maybe four or 10 people who had any idea what they're doing. So they said, why don't we start an organization that is going to train the next generations of digital campaigners? And they start running these, these workshops that like teach people how to write advocacy emails and fundraising emails. 
on one level, real like nuts and bolts stuff. But on another level, this is a new field coming together. Nobody else knows that. They're creating it. And so then they're figuring out how to teach this stuff too. And they also had Roots Camp, which is this major convening. It's an unconference. And is both where they're teaching major skills, but also where practitioners are having serious debates about what are we doing now and how do we make it better? It's critical infrastructure. I'm not saying it's a perfect organization. No organization is perfect, but it's really good. And I went and I studied them. I did field research there. It seemed obviously like this like pretty cheap infrastructure that matters for the entire Netroots and is part of the ecology that they're building. And then a couple of years later, after Obama, so it's probably 2014, 2015, the organization collapses. And the immediate story of that collapse that was reported at the time was that the new executive director of NOI wasn't managing it well, and they had financial problems and staff problems, and then there was a blow up with the board of directors. A bunch of drama there that I saw happening at the time that was real. But underneath that, the thing that I remember thinking about contemporaneously, and I thought about ever since, the bad job he was doing wasn't like he was embezzling or anything. The problem that the ED ran into was NOI stopped getting funding from a bunch of the major institutional funders, basically because NOI stopped looking new. It started to look like infrastructure. And democratic donors, particularly institutional donors, back then were pretty much always trying to chase the next big thing. And so once NOI wasn't new, once it was just infrastructure, the big donors didn't want to fund it. Training is not profitable. It's never been profitable. And so suddenly they started facing these big funding gaps. And the ED, instead of figuring out how do we manage our budget or what are the new programs we're going to build, instead he has to figure out how do I communicate to my staff that like some of you aren't going to have a job in January and we're not sure which one, but please still have morale. And Again, like I don't know the guy. I don't, I'm sure he could have done a better job of that. But that is like objectively a worse situation to be in than being the executive director of a nonprofit whose budget is stable. Did you ever talk to like Judith Freeman about like there were political problems w- that she had with funders? She ran afoul of them politically in certain ways before Ethan came in. Did you ever chat with her about it? I chatted with her for the move on effect. Yeah. I didn't chat with her after she stopped running uh, NOI, so yeah. I never talked to her about that directly. Yeah. But I think the general point holds, and I've seen it a lot, that um, that funders in at least progressive politics that I follow, a lot of them are much more interested in the innovation, the startup, the new, than they are in the maintenance, as you put it in the infrastructure. I've actually talked recently to a series of funders on that side, and I've asked them that question. And it's interesting to see different ways that they answer it. But I think it's always tempting, I think even in the for-profit world, to fund something that has the potential that you found it and is going to be big than just be someone who keeps an existing thing that you already take for granted going. Right. Yeah. The idea, and I think that especially applies in politics where we're looking around the political world and thinking like, okay, we, we, this, if we keep doing what we've been doing, then the status quo will continue and we don't like the status quo. So I can understand the instinct as funders. I mean, hell, it's an instinct I've had as an academic and as a practitioner to say, let's try to invest in new things that might radically reshape the playing field. I'm not saying that that's entirely bad, but 
I think that gives short shrift to the importance of building long-term infrastructure. I don't talk about this in the piece, but if I had added another thousand words to the piece, the thing I would have talked about is the Democracy Alliance in that decade or so, right? Because the Democracy Alliance comes out of 2004 era, like losing in 2004, Rob Stein starts going around with his slideshow. I was on the Sierra board. Like I got to see that. I saw it too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's saying to everybody, we need an alliance of big donors who are going to fund long-term infrastructure. And what they did instead was they said, we're going to have an alliance of big donors that will jointly fund infrastructure, but also demand a bunch of reportings that every year or two we can revisit and make sure that our investments are good. And what that means is that you get lots and lots of additional reporting for the organizations. You do get some more institutional money, like you know, NOI and a lot of other groups, I'm pretty sure were funded by that. I like the donors trying to coordinate more, but the instinct of we are going to make bets that last 10 or 20 years was never there. Instead, it was always an instinct of, you know, we are going to be more careful with our money. We're going to demand a bunch of reporting so we know it's well spent. And that means that we're going to be constantly revisiting these things. And that means that you can't build long-term institutions because every two or three years, they're going to look around and say, what's what's the next thing going to be? Let's defund the stuff we just funded and try a new thing. But don't things like Center for American Progress and Media Matters, and, I mean, institutions that did have, that are still going come out of that, right? Some of them do. Yeah. yeah. But an awful lot. I haven't done this particular study yet. It would require a bunch of data that isn't in the data set I'm currently looking at. But if we were to go back and look at the investments that they made circa 2006 and look at funding levels over time, my guess is what we're going to see is an awful lot of them dropping off. And the ones that stay having to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to continue to justify that they're still new, they're still innovative. I think cognitively this is within left donor circles, the embrace of innovation, the focus on innovation, which I mean, we also... Like I'm not sure how left-wing tech donors map onto this because again, like I have an impression, but I don't have data. But you know, every two years, I will see stories about the new startups that Reed Hoffman keeps on every two years deciding to like gamify politics and invest in a bunch of new things that should change everything. And that instinct of every two years saying like, let's pretend that we're doing this from scratch, like, I think that's kind of a bad instinct. I think you're better off actually trying to value institutions, imperfect though they are, giving them enough longevity and then encouraging them to pursue innovation within their structure. And that's the thing that's been missing, which means that like you lose NOI assuming something else will replace it. Nothing ever really replaces that. And when I, I look at democratic politics, when I look at the the inability over decades to build a competitor to Republican talk radio or Fox News, it's not that nobody's noticed that problem. It's that every attempt to to do that ends up short-term and underfunded because after a few years, people decide it's not new anymore. Air America could have competed with that stuff if it kept on having funding and had enough runway to try to work out its problems. But if you pretty quickly are deciding, okay, this needs to be profitable, then you're just going to keep on reinventing the wheel. My impression is that this is a problem that's plagued the progressive ecosystem for a long time is like we could use some more billionaires. We could also use billionaires with a bit more patience and valuing maintenance. I've observed that. Although I think it's complicated. Do you follow the sort of higher ground labs, new media ventures, funders of a variety of new organizations, higher ground labs, it's for-profit, progressive tech, 
New Media Ventures also does nonprofits. Do you follow like the output of the cohorts that they put out? So I, I did back when I was writing Analytic Activism, like I, I, I knew Taryn Steinbrenner Kaufman pretty well. Um, that, that was a crowd that I was studying pretty closely one book ago. Um, I, I, my knowledge of them is pretty dated now because again, for the past three, four years, I've mostly been reading old wired magazines. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's sort of this model of planting a bunch of seeds. There are definitely companies that they help launch, that they help seed that are not successful or get absorbed into other companies, but there are plenty that are still going forward. And I was at a, New Media Ventures gathering online the other day, and they said that of the over 100 that they had started, that something very like up in the upper 90s were still going, and they've been going on for a while. So I don't know. I think there's those are all sort of new stuff that at least is surviving. I don't know how much of it is scaling to to real to really big. I think it is a a challenging area for the funders to get right, and I I doubt they're they're nailing it right now. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this in the piece, but there's, I often see a temptation on the left to insist or assume that conservative donors are more strategic or smarter about this. I want to push back against that instinct. I think what we actually see here is just, there are more of them, right? Like it more is, money, it is the more money to play with. Yeah. yeah. It, it is objectively easier to fund infrastructure uh, from billionaires when the infrastructure's entire point is to help those billionaires not pay taxes and not be regulated as they pursue more money. They get like ROI. That, yeah. So so like that that makes their side easier. On the one hand, like I sometimes think about James O'Keefe's crew. The group that infiltrates left wing organizations and films it. Yeah. What are they called? Uh, uh, Project Veritas. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Project Truth, ironically. Yeah. yeah. So like James O'Keefe's Project Veritas, if you were to just read coverage of them over the past decade plus, the number of times that the story that got reported wasn't just about like their initiatives falling apart, but was actually about them sticking foot in mouth and then shooting foot. They've had things come apart where like they tried to do an expose on the New Yorker and they called up a reporter and then and like left a message and failed to hang up, like accidentally didn't hang up the phone where <laughs> they started debriefing how they're going to totally get the reporter. And like that sort of goofball stuff was happening all the time. And Project Veritas throughout its history, despite constantly being a laughingstock, has just kept on bringing in more money. And again, that's because they are part of a broader political project with enough be money behind it that it's kind of a rounding error to just keep on giving James O'Keefe money in case he strikes gold again, the way he did against Acorn. Well, it's kind of tantalizing for them to have him as a gadfly or worse. Right. Yeah. But like, it, it's real easy to fund all that infrastructure if you have enough billionaires. But like, if a bunch of progressives could just win the lottery 70 times, then I think a lot of this maintenance stuff becomes easier just because there'll be more money to spend on it. But I don't want the hope of a progressive future to hang on us winning the lottery a bunch of times. And what that means is that what we probably need to do is rethink the focus on innovation and the role of maintenance. Not to say like we shouldn't innovate anymore, but like I think we probably have the balance a little wrong. We probably need to work on that. Where do you think the locus of that could lie? What do you mean? I mean, who can lead that? 
I suspect that with Reed Hoffman, with Schmidt Ventures, with some of the billionaires on this side that are real interested in it, that there's that they're doing some real thinking about, I know they're doing real thinking about what is important short-term and long-term and where can money be most efficacious. And and they're not the only ones. There, there's definitely a lot, you know, people thinking about defending the democracy right now who are trying to figure out where to put their dollars. Right. There's a lot going on there. There's this event horizon, which is the election. After the election, I imagine there are circles. I mean, 15 years ago, the answer would be the democracy line. Like 15 years ago, I would have said, like, I or somebody like me needs to get invited to the Democracy Alliance meeting where I can yell about, make your investments longer term. I don't know what the equivalent of the Democracy Alliance is I mean, today. they're still around. Yeah, they're still around, but I don't know if Reid Hoffman and like Pierre Omidyar and everyone are all going to that. And if there's some other place where the key players are all gathering, then it needs to be in that place. And if not, there probably needs to be a place. My hope is that as significant players start thinking through what are our steps that they try to keep the medium and long-term or at least medium term, you know, like 10 year horizon in mind so that they avoid the instinct of saying, well, let's just invest in something new. I don't know where those conversations happen now. Cause again, I'm a few years out of studying this particular sector. This is an act of recollection as opposed to active research, but I would say wherever those conversations are, if those conversations aren't happening, they should. And assuming that they are, Wherever they're happening, I hope they try to insert that value as they sort through the mess. So how does the sort of authoritarian threat change your job? As a professor? Yeah. I think for many of us, if if what we're doing is a small piece of a big puzzle, but the whole ship can be overturned and make irrelevant your work, my work, anyone's work, do you think about like the choice of topic, the choice of what you're communicating about afresh because of the dangers and the level of them? I have always in my classes, um, particularly the, the strategic class, I, I have always had an episode where I start the class by having us discuss something that happened in the news this week in order to try to make these strategic lessons concrete and, and a conversation. And that's an activity that I was doing in the Obama era that was interesting and intellectually fruitful. It's an activity that I was doing in the Trump era that was clearly necessary because how are we not talking about the thing that just happened? Like any given week while I'm walking to work, I'd be looking at Twitter and realize I have to throw out my lesson plan to talk about this shit. But during the Trump era, the thing that made it sort of practically more difficult is like teaching strategic planning or teaching strategic communication skills when the people who have all of the power are so manifestly bad at the skills that I'm teaching, but have power anyway. On the one hand, that drives home a lesson that I'm always teaching my students anyway, which is structural power is more valuable than narrative power. So that drives that lesson home. It's also just a deeply depressing lesson though, because the question of, okay, they overturned Roe, but it was six months ago, and so time has passed, and a segment of the voting public has just decided to edit that out of their minds and treat it as a status quo already. Even if that's empirically true, and there's a set of skills we can use to fight against it, but it's going to be an uphill battle, like knowing all of that is kind of just baseline depressing. Post-January 6th, teaching what I teach, like on one level, I can build up a head of steam and convince myself and my students that there's never been a more important time to be good at these skills. 
because the stakes have never been higher. And on another hand, like my entire field and all of my research is premised on us living in a stable democracy. And if we just aren't anymore, like I'm not going to avoid that fact. So we engage with it in the classroom. But it, but it leaves me wondering, like, should I be trying to do a bunch of international research so I can have an escape hatch to flee the country? Like I, I live in Washington, D.C. Like when January 6th happened, if you walk a few blocks from my house, you can see the Capitol. So when January 6th happened, like I just had to make sure that like my kid was entertained and didn't ask too many questions about like, why can't I go to the playground today? Like the answer is because like the tear gas may flow down here. But, you know, she's four. I can't really explain. Like, she doesn't know that yet. I can't explain that yet. So all of that makes it, like, depressing and and harder as a citizen. I don't know what my field looks like if we are fully post-democracy. If we're, Like, if we're in a one-party authoritarian state six years from now, most of what I teach ends up being at least a little outdated because it's premised on a bunch of assumptions about democratic governance that have fallen. You bring that into the classroom, but also... Like it's it's harder and objectively worse because everything's harder and objectively worse as things turn to shit. It's a very cheerful thing f- for us to go over, but I, yeah, my, my vibe is my, my vibe has always been like, man, that guy's right, and that sucks. That's what I'm good for. <laughs> you mentioned earlier this field at APSA called tech, info tech and politics, or something like that. Information technology and politics. Who else is doing? good work in that space or has been over the time that you've paid attention to it? Who else should people who are, say, practitioners in progressive politics know in the academic world that in sort of digital politics realm? So 10 years ago, this is an easy answer, a question to answer because the list was pretty small. Now the the list is large enough that my worry is off the top of my head that I'm going to mention a bunch of good people. And then afterwards, like after we finish talking, I'll be like, oh, there's nine other people I really need to tell you about. Top of the head, uh, let's see, Sarah Jackson at University of Pennsylvania. She and a couple co-authors have this great book on hashtag activism, how social media get used by activist networks. She's fantastic. My colleague at GW, Rebecca Trombles, has been doing fantastic work on how Twitter gets used by journalists and also like how do we protect journalists. Daniel Creason, Shannon McGregor, and like their entire team at UNC Chapel Hill are excellent on electoral politics and how the platforms interact with them. Who are some of my other favorites? Brendan Nyan up at Dartmouth is like, he deserves all of the awards for doing scholarship that is incredibly rigorous while also present in the social moment that we're in. David Brockman and Josh Kala. Brockman's at either Stanford or Berkeley. I forget. I think he's at Stanford. But they've been doing the most robust experiments on Earth, really figuring out and like they, they don't call themselves information technology and politics, but like they've been figuring out like both what, if anything, matters in elections for things like persuasion, and also doing these incredibly robust studies that help us to figure out the impacts of the social media universe. Jessica Baldwin Filippi at Fordham. I feel like this list is getting long. And like I said, there are now, I think, a lot more people than there were 10 years ago who are doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of a few others. And I think it's changed over the time I've paid attention from a sort of backwater, perhaps, or people weren't really just like it did with digital directors and campaigns. Like they were in the corner and then they were in the 
in the room. And I think that happened in academia too. Oh yeah. And when I was getting started, the idea of paying attention to the blogosphere seemed kind of quaint. And the idea of like studying interest groups like move on by directly studying them was kind of like, I mean, methodologically, you're not going to use any of our major tools. Why would you do that? And yeah, that is certainly as the internet has swallowed the rest of the world, that also means that more and more the discipline has decided that the internet is a variable they care about. Before we started recording, you, you mentioned that you're paying a lot of attention to Elon and Twitter. Can you say just briefly what your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I wrote a piece on Substack just before he took over titled Staring Down the Twitter Apocalypse. And the prediction I made then was like one to three months in, the story that's going to get written by journalists is how after all the hubbub, really nothing, nothing has changed. Twitter's the same. Nobody's left. And then like a year or so in, it's going to be a ghost town. It's going to fall apart. And having watched him over the course of six days, I think it's going to fall apart a little quicker than that because he is just doing a monumentally bad job. I'll be working on a piece actually later today updating all of this. But the thing that stands out to me is I think we haven't wrapped our heads around just how big this tech crash is. The valuations of everything in Silicon Valley are down in a way that is reminiscent of the dot-com crash. The bubble that built for 20-something years has pretty seriously deflated. And that means that you know Facebook is now worth like a third of what it was a year ago. Tesla is worth, I think, half what it was worth a year ago. But Amazon is worth 40% less, even though Amazon really is still dominating in all the ways it was dominating. But that only takes them back mm-hmm. two years, right? I mean, like Facebook is back to 2016. Those numbers going down which is also hitting Netflix, it's also hitting startups, it's hitting the entire sector. Part of w- the way that plays out importantly for Elon and Twitter is I've been trying to imagine the counterfactual universe where you know Elon offers $44 billion for Twitter back in April before this tech crash. Now, if there's no tech crash, first of all, I don't think he tries to pull out of the deal. So he doesn't spend six months trashing Twitter. But more importantly, then he buys a company that is arguably worth $44 billion. And his project is Twitter has for a long time been a famously mismanaged company, which is more socially important than it is profitable. And I think his thinking at the time is, I'm going to come in, I'm going to add some more products and like make it profitable by like just cleaning up some stuff. This will be the next chapter of my business genius like narrative. And then I'll be able to flip it back to the public market for a profit. Like huge win. I didn't think when he announced it that was going to work, but like I think without the tech crash, the past days go a lot more smoothly because he would would have just spent forty four billion dollars on a company that's worth basically forty four billion dollars. He can take his time. Instead, he spent forty four on a company worth like fifteen to twenty billion dollars, and all of the rest of his portfolio has been cut in half. Forty four billion dollars, he can afford it, but that's still a a lot of money if he's gone from being having $200 billion to having $100 billion in his, in his bank account. And he didn't spend 44 directly. He also spent, uh, he also got $13 billion in debt financing, which means every year he needs to generate a billion dollars just to cover the debts. And that puts him in a situation where Elon Musk on day one is saying, I need to cut all of the staff and monetize the shit out of everything. So like what I predicted last week was over the course of a year, in order to just cover those debts, he was going to roll out a bunch of like harebrained monetization plays that 
turn the underlying product to shit while also getting rid of content moderation, even if he doesn't formally change all the rules, if he fires all the content moderators, then it's not going to work well. And that over, over a year or so, that's just going to turn the thing into MySpace where it, it just becomes unusable and people eventually find something else. I don't know what the next thing is yet. And now watching him, like, yeah, he is very quickly rolling out a bunch of stupid monetization plays, some of which would seem less stupid if he was doing less of a bad job of rolling them out. That's just going to continue for months and months until we all get exhausted and find somewhere else to congregate. That's going to be fine for celebrities who have a million followers on Twitter. They'll find a million followers on the next thing. It's going to be fine for normal people who use Twitter mostly to follow stories and people they like to follow. They'll find on the next thing. The joke I've been making to people is that the, the people who will be really undermined by this are the like random Twitter celebrities who have way more followers than they deserve because of that one time they made fed up fun of Brett Stevens. Whatever comes next, like I'm not going to have 40,000 40, followers there. Like I, I shouldn't have that. And the next thing people will be like, who are you? You're that guy from four years ago. Who cares? So like, it'll be a shame for me, whatever comes next. And I'll miss it because I like Twitter. There is something kind of delicious watching the world's richest man who built his fortune out of convincing people that he was real life Tony Stark, dissolving before our eyes because he's actually not that impressive and we don't believe his myth anymore because we're watching him fall apart in real time. There's something kind of delicious just watching that comeuppance. But yeah, like as someone who spends probably too much time on Twitter, a lot of my thoughts these days are watching this billionaire destroy a thing that I like because he thought that he was smarter than he was and he made a bad investment. Now he wants it to be our problem. I wonder if it'll roll out that way or he'll find a way. I myself have found predictions to be very challenging to make. And you probably have found that not everyone gets them right, but we'll see. One of the most interesting things I assume about covering the world of tech is history moves so quickly so that you can go back 25 years and wire. I mean, in a lot of ways it does. There's tremendous change in 25 years, but other things don't happen, I guess. So I would, this is kind of the core of the Wired project. So like invite me back in three years and I'll have a whole book to tell you about this. So two notes on that. One is I deeply believe in making predictions so long as you embrace being wrong. That's what I'm doing with the move on effect and, and with the Wired project. I think the best way to learn things is to make predictions at time A and then look back on it at time A plus X and honestly ask yourself, okay, I thought this then, what did I get wrong? Because the things you got wrong then allow you, they, they, those are then space for you to learn new things. So both as a, as a practitioner, I've always deeply believed in reflective practice and using that to critically analyze your tactics and strategies. And as an academic, that's where most of my best ideas have come from is saying, I don't understand this. And I know I don't because I made a prediction and it was wrong. The other thing I want to push you on is while history moves real fast in the 90s and the 2000s in technology, we've had a decade of tremendous stability. Like the internet of 2022 is remarkably similar to the internet of 2012. I've written about this a couple of times is what I call the, the slowdown of internet time. In 2012, I wrote a piece called Social Science Research Methods in Internet Time, where I mentioned as sort of one of the originating ideas in it that the internet of 2022 will be radically different than 2012, just as the internet of 2012 is different than the internet of 2002. And then last year, I'm looking around and started to notice that if you compare 2002 to 2012, those are radically different internets. I mean, 2002, we don't even really have Wi-Fi most places yet. 2012, iPhones, tablets, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, all are there. Those didn't exist in 02. The internet of 2012 was 
Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, in the United States, Twitter, YouTube, which is part of Google. The end of 2022 is all of those plus Instagram, which is part of Facebook and TikTok. It gives tremendous stability. Part of that is because we've allowed monopolies to rise up and acquire things. So instead of competition, we've gotten consolidation. But part of it also is the phenomenon of Moore's law of constantly changing the internet as the amount of processing power on chips both doubles and gets cheaper. That started to peter out about a decade ago. And that's also allowed for this consolidation. So I I think actually digital time is moving a lot less fast than we used to assume. I'd have to think deeply about that to contest it. Although I do feel like there's quite a lot of change technologically more than just in the internet in the last 10 years. Follow up with me offline about it, but like, cause this, this is kind of the, the core of the wired project. It's a thing that I did not believe and have come to believe through the archival research. Like as we get into the recent archives, the pace of digital change, like they're still making predictions about how Google glass is going to change everything. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think we covered everything. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to say? No, thanks for having me on. Okay, thanks. That was Professor Dave Karp. He's at davekarp.substack.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.